Hello, I'm T.J. Radcliffe. I'm reading my story, Cassandra, from the book collection Machine of Death. For more information, please visit machineofdeath.net. Cassandra It was like that old movie back in the day, where the machine asks the kid, How about a nice game of chess? No, he types back. Let's play Global Thermonuclear War. That's what the slip of paper in my hand read, Global Thermonuclear War. I was 16 years old, a girl, just about a woman. You may have heard of the Delvice, which is what the marketing droids decided to call it back in the day when they thought it was going to change the world. The Delphi device. Clever, huh? Stick your finger in, feel a little prick, find out how you're going to die. There were jokes about some unfortunate early ad copy. I'm just sorry for the guy who has everybody feeling his little prick. But it really was that simple, if anyone could figure out what it all meant. Where did the words come from? The internals were simple. A few cells of your blood were vaporized by a laser, and the optical spectrum was fed into your basic quad-core PC running a huge neural net. It had some limitations. The result was always in English, and while the machines never made an error when they were calibrated properly, like any other device, they could go wrong. Then they just produced plausible nonsense. People got predictions like colorless green ideas, which was meaningful enough to kill Chomsky's theory of language, but not much else. The rest of the time, the words had meaning, but not always the obvious meaning. Words are ambiguous. It has something to do with being a tool for thought. Whatever the machine said, you usually lacked the context to interpret it properly. Hit by car might as easily refer to an amusement park ride as a highway mishap. Crushed by a pig might mean a block of iron or an angry sow. Gunshot covered the bases from artillery to BBs. So despite the early predictions that it was going to change everything, it really didn't. I mean, what use is a prediction that seems tuned up to mislead, and who really wants to know? People had been ignoring doctors' advice for years. It was that much easier to ignore the output of a machine that you couldn't even ask for a second opinion. It became a novelty for a generation. A you-tell-me-yours-and-I'll-tell-you-mine topic of conversation on a first date, like any of a dozen other inventions whose time never quite came. Did you know there was once a guy who built flying cars? Really? They worked, too. They just didn't work well enough to be popular enough to change anything. It's easy to build a novelty. It's hard to make the world reorganize itself so that what used to be a novelty becomes a necessity. Bill Gates managed it with personal computers. Henry Ford with automobiles. Edison with electricity. Bell with telephony, and RCA with radio and television, even if they had to borrow the latter from Farnsworth. But not many others. The Delvice never became a necessity, and novelties don't last. Some folks had fun with it, though. When I was doing research after getting my own prediction, I found out about one guy who, for a while, ran a successful website that would generate a list of possible interpretations for any cause of death. The lists usually ran into the tens, sometimes the hundreds. 
but it soon became obvious that a few short words just weren't enough to encode the kind of information people care about, most of the time. I never told anyone about the prediction I got. It hardly seemed to mean anything, especially once I'd read a few accounts of radical ambiguity. Words on paper from some ancient toy in a backcountry mall that hadn't been maintained for decades. Maybe mine was a nonsense phrase that happened to look meaningful. Might as well ask the once popular Magic 8-Ball something. It got Outlook not so good, right? I don't know if anyone ever asked it about Internet Explorer. The next few years of my life were full of the usual girly things. Boys, toys, sports, and school. Despite dire predictions in the early years of the new millennium, things were shaping up not too badly, and by mid-century anyone with a brain could get along pretty well. I completed a double major in math and business, and found myself working in New York as a second assistant actuary. The chief actuary was a wizened old man with a gentle smile and an old-fashioned manner that hid a timid and conventional mind. There's something about being in the business of predicting death that attracts the mediocre. But a job is a job, and with student loans to pay off, it was good money and a convenient place to start what at that time I like to think of as the long climb over the bodies of my enemies, all the way to the top. The chief, as we called him, made a point of taking new associates out to lunch in the few weeks after their arrival at the firm, and I took that opportunity to ask him about the Delvice. Having moved to the big city, I was thinking again about that strange prediction from years ago, wondering what it really meant and imagining the tall, smoky men nodding their broad-brimmed hats over the skyscrapers while pedestrians screamed through the streets like badly inked extras in an old comic book. I didn't feel comfortable approaching the issue directly, but got up talking about the old days before gene mapping and other death prediction technologies were routine. He had some good stories to tell, mostly about the changes in courtship and marriage that resulted from routine paternity testing. But when I asked, what about the Delvice? Isn't it a little surprising that it never caught on? He looked like he'd swallowed a frog. Hardly surprising at all, he snapped. It's a toy. Gene mapping was a toy once, too. Gene mapping was a tool, even when it was too cumbersome to use. It was clear from the beginning that we could create meaningful probability distribution functions based on people's genetic proclivities, even before routine measurement became possible. With gene mapping, we could associate a given haplotype with a dozen possible causes of natural death and subdivide the population into risk categories accordingly. If someone had DFN8, they were going to go deaf and have poor balance, and we knew what the odds were of them dying because of it. The Delphi device was too well-named. It never produced anything susceptible to statistical analysis. Two people might die of cancer at the age of 75, and one of them would be told cancer in the other old age. Two people might die in the same car crash, and one would be told drunk driver, and the other blunt force trauma, and the odds are that the one who had been drinking would get the drunk driver prediction. Actuarial art is not just about numbers, it's about categories, and we carefully choose categories of causes that matter to us. Diseases we can cure, accidents we can prevent, chronic conditions we can treat. Those are what matter, 
The Delvice used some other kind of categorization scheme, and it was too capricious to offer any statistical guidance, much less individual assurance. I nodded and tried to look intelligently interested, although so far he hadn't said anything I didn't know, and nothing that explained his apparent hostility toward the machine. Then there was the element of time. Suppose you knew you were going to die of heart failure. At what age? Without that bit of information, you really don't know anything that you didn't know before, even in the old days when we just had things like family history and lifestyle to go on. Finally, and most famously, there was the interpretation issue. I recall one case where a man was predicted to die from a falling meteorite. Astrophysicists spent a fortune following him around, waiting to get the rock still hot from its descent through the atmosphere. And, of course, he wound up dying in a museum during the making of a documentary about his predicament when one of the exhibits fell on him. So even in cases where there seemed to be no room for ambiguity, there were too many possibilities. And no one ever tried to get past those issues? Oh, we tried. I myself once headed up a division of the company that was tasked with finding a way to aggregate sufficient data to make statistically valid inferences from the Delvice forecasts. It was very nearly the demise of my career, he grimaced at the painful memory. At first it looked straightforward. There were techniques for dealing with imperfect data, but as someone once said, data is not the plural of anecdote. To perform any sort of statistical inference, we must have some sort of homogeneity, and there wasn't any way of imposing that on the Delvitic results. In the end, my team was able to prove mathematically that there was some kind of maximum entropy principle behind the predictive mechanism. Prediction was only possible if the sum total of knowledge in the world remained constant. Anything else would have violated the second law of thermodynamics which even a poor statistician like me knows isn't going to happen. So, in a sense, the feeling of knowledge that the Delvice predictions created was just that, a feeling. The simple fact of knowing how you were going to die necessarily changed the world in such a way that the knowledge couldn't do you any good. It didn't create any new information. It just collected little bits of information from a million pieces and concentrated them in one place. We called it the Ignorance Theorem. It was quite a significant result from a purely theoretical perspective, and in fact the mathematician responsible went on to win the Fields Medal for his work on extended probability measures over non-Borel subsets. He was obsessed with finding a loophole in his original result, possibly because his own Delvitic prediction involved something that appeared both equally unlikely and unpleasant to do with sex and horses, as I recall. I opened my eyes wide with slightly salacious girly curiosity at this, and his pale skin took on a genteel flush. But he didn't fill me in, either on the details of the prediction or the actual fate of the mathematician in question. My later research showed that it was every bit as unlikely and far more unpleasant than even those fleeting scenes that had spattered my imagination initially. The board of directors, as you might imagine, wasn't much interested in theoretical results, regardless of how interesting they might have been to academics. 
They didn't even allow us to publish what we had, hoping rival firms would continue to invest in something we knew to be a dead end. It took me several years to make up for that failure, and I was fortunate to salvage my career at all. No matter what anyone tells you, they always shoot the messenger. If he's very lucky, as I was, it's only a flesh wound. So even if someone had an unambiguous prediction, they wouldn't be able to do anything about it? That is correct. It's a bit like those oddball quantum phenomenon we used to hear so much about, that some people thought were going to allow faster-than-light communication. A fellow I knew in college got stuck with that one as his first job out of school. Apparently everyone who understood anything about the problem knew that it could never be used to send signals. But someone in senior management at his employer decided it just made sense to use the catchphrase of the arrogant and the ignorant. He shook his head sadly, in memoriam to a career cut short. Poor man. He was an absolute genius, a true prodigy in quantum information theory. I hired him as a consultant on the Delvice project, and his own contribution to the work was critical. It was taking quite a risk on my part, what with corporate chairs being the only secure university employment these days, and him having been blacklisted. The motto of the modern corporation is, if at first you don't succeed, hide any evidence you ever tried. If that means ruining a few careers here and there, then that's just too bad. That was the last intellectual work he was able to secure. Although, I understand he has continued his own theoretical research, despite turning his hand to plumbing for a living, which I suppose has its remuneration, financially if no other way. In any case, his experience was a cautionary tale to me, and, with his advice, I was able to present the final result to the board without quite falling on my own sword. I almost laughed at the sudden image of him dressed in ramshackled armor like a knight, but had the sense to restrict myself to a weak smile. He was clearly touchy on the subject of careers ruined by the ignorant asking for the impossible. But I could hardly help asking, but how does it work? If someone had a clear prediction, say, of death by hurricane, wouldn't they be able to know that a hurricane was going to hit? Yes, but when and where? And will they be in more than one hurricane? We had great hopes for such people, but unfortunately the general principle meant that only a few unambiguous predictions could exist, and even when we could find people who had them, it gave us nothing useful. A dozen people in Los Angeles were found with earthquake predictions, but that's hardly new information. All it told us was that there would be people killed in California by earthquakes. Film at eleven, as we used to say. I let the obscure reference go. Film? So even in the case where someone knew they were going to die in a singular global catastrophe, a war or famine or plague, they couldn't do anything to prevent it? Not unless they can also violate the second law of thermodynamics. It would be the equivalent of building a perpetual motion machine. Strictly impossible. Even if they published their prediction, no one would believe them, or the act of publishing it would cause the event to occur, like a central banker warning of a panic and causing a run on the banks. As I said, the marketing people did a better job than they could possibly have dreamed of when they named the Delphi device. The Greeks understood the vagaries of prediction. They knew that knowledge can't be created out of nothing. 
And in this case, the price of knowing one thing is the inability to do anything about it. I would have thought that someone with your name would appreciate that, Cassandra. But I suppose hope really does spring eternal among the young. I've spent many years since then pondering what he told me, and learning far more math and physics than I ever dreamed existed in those days as a lonely actuarial assistant. I even broke into the company's archives and verified that the theoretical work that the chief's group did decades ago is sound. I've worked through the proofs myself, and I can't see any way around it. By concentrating the knowledge of how one is going to die into a few simple words, the same information is lost from a million other places that might prevent the occurrence from actually coming to pass. The ignorance theorem might be summed up as, to know what is going to happen to an individual, there must be a loss of information about the group. And by removing information from that dynamic context, we remove the possibility of change. I hooked up with the chief's quantum mechanic friend a few years ago, and found he had indeed continued to work on the ignorance theorem. He had been able to prove that it is the act of measurement that actually fixes the individual's fate. Free will is a collective phenomenon. Individuals only have it when they're in ignorant atom within a larger group. It is in the dynamics, the ebb and flow of information, passing freely between individuals in a billion small ways, that makes the process of choice possible. The group can be in a mixture of a million information eigenstates at once, each representing a possible future, all evolving as an uncertain whole. The Delvice picks out one possible future from that mix and collapses the collective wave function into a single state relative to the fate of that individual which suggests there is one desperate way to reverse the process. I am not taking this course lightly. I went back to that old backcountry mall where I got my prediction so many years ago and bought their machine, certainly one of the last in existence. It was cheap. I've been testing people ever since. My job, now in the upper echelons of the insurance business, has given me access to a lot of blood samples. It isn't exactly ethical, but I've never been at risk of being caught. I can't tell anything from the data. I wondered if there would be an increase in fire predictions for younger people who were more likely to live until the bombs fell. But the ignorance theorem holds. There is nothing in the data that unambiguously pointed to a sudden increase in violent death. There can't be. It was only a matter of time before the final thought occurred to me. I am the only person who knows of my prediction. Perhaps I am the only one who got it. The meteorite man was certainly unique in his fate. Maybe I am too. Suicide won't work. People tried that back in the day. Terminally depressed souls who were told by the Delvice they were going to die of cancer and tried to shoot themselves or poison themselves or drown themselves. It never worked. They either failed entirely, the gun misfired or the poison turned out to be candy. Or they floated back to the surface and lived out their days as institutionalized vegetables until they died, as predicted, of cancer. What I need to do is not destroy my life, but rather disperse the knowledge of how it is going to end. If I do that, then perhaps it won't happen. It is the only thing I can think of in my increasingly desperate quest, but I must not reveal to anyone what my prediction is, or they would have to share my fate. Fate. 
there's another fine Greek concept. I've lived well enough these past years, knowing that tomorrow we all might die. I've never married, never had children. I regret that if I regret anything. But I've been able to enjoy myself in ways that others, trapped in more conventional lives, might not. Penultimately, I have murdered my quantum collaborator. His body won't be found. His prediction read simply, Cassandra, death by me. When he first heard my name, he gave a small start, and then a slow smile spread across his features and he nodded. He was a very old man, even for these long-lived times. His first words were, I'm happy to say that I've been waiting for you for a very, very long time, and I think I am indeed ready to meet you at last. He was a good friend, and helped me to understand the nature of the problem and the only possible solution. But he knew too much. If he didn't know the exact nature of my prediction, he guessed the general sense of it. He had to die, and the machine said I had to kill him. As for me, administering electroshock therapy to yourself isn't easy, but I'm pretty sure my setup will work. It's amazing what you can find on eBay, complete with manuals even. This old Russian gear is supposed to be the best. I have it wired, so there is a program of shocks that will be administered until I am unable to speak the passphrase, which is, as you might expect, global thermonuclear war. As soon as I say it, I'll be shocked again. Once an hour has passed with no shocks, an automated email will alert the building super. Just one line, emergency, send paramedics to Unit 10C. If that doesn't work, my rent is due tomorrow, which will certainly bring him to the door soon enough. I don't know why I'm writing this even. Before I shock myself the first time, I'll scrub the drive and burn this machine. But I guess I wanted to review in my own mind what brought me to this pass. Decades of knowing, or at least suspecting that I knew how the world was going to end. With tensions rising again in Micronesia over thermoelectric rights to the Western Pacific Basin, it is time to act. If I can disperse the knowledge in my mind, turn it back into a million random acts of a million anonymous human beings, put the world back into a superposition of possible futures, it might just be enough to prevent the end. The paramedics who are called to my side will be changed, however slightly, by responding to that call instead of some other. The doctors and nurses will have the courses of their lives deflected. Perhaps I'll even make the news, changing in some small way the minds of many thousands of people who will see a story about me instead of something else. In these things, I still have a choice. If not in the manner of my passing, then at least in the manner of my living. There is no certainty I will succeed. Perhaps I am committing mental suicide for nothing. But I have to try. I've read a great deal on the effects of electroshock, and there is a good chance I'll be rehabilitated. I've given much thought to what I might do with the rest of my life, and concluded that the only way to avoid future disasters of this kind is for humanity to expand beyond just one world. We have been to Mars and back. It is time to go there and stay. The note beside my bed reads simply, Only one Earth is not enough. 
I'm afraid to say anything more. Afraid I will give in to some subconscious temptation that would eventually lead me right back to this point. I have done what I can. If it works, I will have saved humanity. And no one, not even I, will ever know. Goodbye. For more stories about the Machine of Death, visit our website, machineofdeath.net. This audio file is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share-Alike License. That means feel free to share it, send it around, or adapt it however you like, but please don't sell it. I'm TJ Radcliffe. You can find out more about my ongoing projects at tjradcliffe.com. Thanks for listening.